for relaxing times. Make it Suntory time. Hello, 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 and you're tuning in to an episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. Several months ago, back in early May, news broke out that the famous Japanese whiskey, the Hibiki 17-year-old, was to be discontinued from production by Suntory. This was somewhat odd. In an age where Japanese whiskies are celebrated and in high demand, why did they cease production? In today's episode, we're going to have a look into what happened, as well as how a certain financial product, known as futures contracts, could have helped to mitigate it. The biggest clue we have, as some of you might have guessed, is timing. Unlike producing ordinary goods such as Coca-Cola or potato chips, age whiskies, as its name implies, require a significant period of time before it can be sold. What this means then, is that the consequences of your production decisions will only be realized much later on. This thus begs the question, what happened all those years ago that caused Suntory to reduce their supply? As it turns out, it was reported that during the period of 1983 to 2007, whiskey consumption in Japan fell by a staggering 80%. Now in some sense, this was forthcoming. Japan was coming off an insane post-war boom signified by high levels of investment, exports, and productivity. However, when the 1973 oil crisis hit, many Japanese industries were severely affected, due in most part to the fact that they were still heavily reliant on imported energy. What followed was years of painful and costly restructuring measures to make the industries more independent, but which came at the price of future economic growth. What made this worse was the looming 1989 stock and property market crash, an economic tragedy that would ultimately send the nation into its now infamous deflationary cycle. Here is how William Tsutsui, professor of history and associate dean for international studies at the University of Kansas, described the aftermath. Well, what happened then when the bubble burst? The peak was the last day of the 1980s. The last day of trading on the Nikkei Stock Exchange in 1989 was its historic peak. On that day, I think it was December 29, 1989, the Nikkei Index, which is the index for the Tokyo Stock Exchange, hit a record of over 39,000. Within two years, it had withered to 14,000, and it bottomed out at 8,000 just over a decade later. Prices traced a similar trajectory. In the early 1990s, over the span of just 30 months, 
Japanese investors and landowners saw $2.5 trillion in the value of their assets simply disappear. the 1990s as Japan's age of vanishing wealth, when a generation's worth of capital creation could evaporate in only a matter of weeks. The crisis which began in the financial and real estate markets quickly sent shockwaves through the entire economy. The growth rate fell precipitously from 3.1% in 1991 to 0.4% in 1992 and 0.2% in 1993. In 1998 and 2001, Japan actually experienced negative growth. These are dark times in Japan's modern history, and the effects of the market crash would reverberate throughout the country by way of the millions of economic decisions taking place each day, especially with regards to employment. Here is Professor Tsutsui again. Corporations retrenched, pruning expenses, shedding redundant workers, and moving high-cost production overseas, especially to China and Southeast Asia, where labor costs were low. This led to swelling ranks of unemployed workers, something unheard of in Japan since the tough days of the occupation. The official unemployment rate topped 5.5% in 2003, though economists estimated that the actual rate was closer to 9%. When hordes of workers are getting retrenched and the general economic outlook is gloomy, it is probably the case that consumers wouldn't be too willing to splurge on expensive bottles of whiskey. Suntory in turn obliged by cutting down its production. But remember how we talked about the timing and consequences of whiskey production earlier? About how it was unlike producing Coca-Cola or potato chips? Well, you can imagine the tricky situation that Suntory finds itself in. For aged whiskies, adjusting supply to meet demand is not just a simple matter of turning the production line on or off. And when the results of your business decisions are only realized 10 or 20 years down the road, it's easy to find yourself in a mismatched situation of over or under production. This, as luck would have it, would be manifested in the most uncanny of situations, for in the early 2000s, Suntory landed a nifty product placement deal that would see their Hibiki brand being prominently featured in the award-winning American romantic comedy Lost in Translation. The scene featured a suave Bill Murray holding a glass of Hibiki whiskey, in a tuxedo and seated in a leather chair no less, as he delivered this famous line. For relaxing times, make it Suntory time. The company would soon gain international recognition from the movie, and the Hibiki whiskey even went on to win multiple international awards and honors. At the very least, this was a bittersweet moment. 
and has demand spiked on the back of their newfound fame, as well as from the growing middle class coming out of places like China and India, it became immediately apparent and painfully obvious that Suntory was nowhere near ready enough to serve all their new customers, the culmination of which resulted in shortages for their aged Hibiki whiskies, as well as its eventual discontinuation. The tale of Suntory and their Hibiki 17 is thus one that spans across multiple decades and countries, from the serene mountainside distilleries in Yamazaki and Hakushu to the silver screens of Hollywood and beyond. It is a tale reflective of how far we've come with supply chains and globalization, but that as the lesson of timing shows, we should also be mindful with our not-too-distant past. Now that we have explored the circumstances behind Suntory's production decisions, what can we make of it? Will the whiskey industry and other similar industries forever face these time-related problems? Or is there a solution that can help mitigate these issues? As it turns out, a possible remedy already exists, and it is a financial instrument known as a futures contract. Futures contract is an agreement between two parties to buy or sell an asset at a predetermined price and time in the future. Notably, futures contracts are themselves assets that you can buy, hold, or sell them just like any stock or bond, and they are typically traded on various exchanges all around the world, including the famous Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the New York Mercantile Exchange, or the Tokyo Financial Exchange. Historically, the practice of trading futures dates back all the way to Greek and Roman marketplaces, and the first formalized futures exchange is generally accepted to be the Dojima Rice Exchange in Japan, which started almost three centuries ago in the 1730s. The problem that people faced then, and continue to face today, is that of price uncertainty. Back then, because there was a significant gap between when certain goods like farm crops was planted and when it was harvested and sold, it was often difficult for farmers to gauge what price they could sell in the future. As a business owner, you can imagine how problematic this can become. If you were a farmer during a drought, you could easily sell your crops at crazy high prices, but during a bumper season you might have to sell them at a tremendous discount. And back in the 1700s when most people were farmers, a poor harvest or unfavorable prices could mean the difference between eating well or starving through the winter. The benefit of a futures contract, therefore, was price stability. If you knew the price and amount at which you can sell something in the future, then you can plan more effectively for it. But equally important is how stable prices help consumers. 
For instance, if you paid any attention to gas prices, you would notice some discrepancy between the volatility of the price of crude oil versus what you could get at the gas station. And this is no accident. Many companies, including gas stations, airlines, and delivery companies, rely on futures contracts so that both you as a consumer and they as a producer could have more price predictability. After all, if companies didn't do this, imagine how often you'd have to change the price of gas, or how many times you'd have to update your menu if you were a restaurant. More than anything, price stability allows businesses to focus on what matters, which is to serve its customers in the best way it can. So now that we've got a better idea of what futures markets are, we can apply them to the case of Santori. If you recall from earlier, we noted that Suntory's production troubles was due to management being unable to foresee the increased demand it would have decades down the road. And amidst a downtrodden Japanese economy, this led Suntory to cut back on production, a decision which they are now only beginning to face the consequences of. Futures contracts thus help mitigate the problem as it allows buyers and sellers to lock in a price and date at which to trade. This is helpful for the sake of price stability, but more crucially for Suntory, it will give them a better grasp of what demand will look like down the road. With this information, management can at the very least be more confident about their production decisions, and Suntory will be able to produce an amount that closer matches the level of demand. Moreover, as futures contracts are tradable assets, this makes it an incredible tool for risk management. Remember how I noted that production managers bore the risk for over or under producing? Well, with futures contracts, those risks can effectively be traded away, or even better, settled with cash. To make this clear, let's try and flesh this out with an example. Say that we have two individuals, Andy and Ben. Andy enters into a futures contract to buy a cask of Hibiki whiskey at $10,000 from Ben in 12 years' time. Right after Ben has agreed to this contract, he may begin production on whiskey immediately, since he knows that he will have a guaranteed buyer in the future. Crucially, however, Ben is also able to trade this contract, and effectively his obligation, to somebody else in the futures market such that he doesn't have to be the one to provide the whiskey. Likewise, Andy will be able to sell his obligation to buy to somebody else if down the road he thinks he could do better. The beauty here is that the risk has been managed effectively. In a world without futures contracts, Ben would be the one bearing the full risk and costs of over or under production. With futures markets, he can trade that risk, which allows him to focus less on the price and the costs, and more on producing whiskey. Realistically speaking, however, there is a caveat which probably explains why a Hibiki futures contract does not yet exist. For futures contracts work best when they are standardized, such as for barrels of oil or for bags of rice. Since it doesn't matter who produces the underlying commodity, the incentive is greater for more participants to trade. And when futures markets are more liquid, which is financial jargon for when there is increased trading activity, 
you are likely to have a better estimate of future demand and price stability. In contrast, a futures contract for Hibiki whiskey is deliberately non-standardized. Buyers won't accept a bottle of Jack Daniels when you have agreed to sell Hibiki, and Suntory is the only producer capable of making the brand. What this likely means is that in a hypothetical Hibiki futures market, it will be harder to incentivize others to trade, leading to less liquidity, reduced functionality, as well as reduced value. Moreover, while we're on the subject of financial instruments, I think it is worth mentioning that derivatives such as futures contracts don't exactly have the best reputation. This is likely due to the inherently risky nature of the instruments. Because you don't need to put down much capital to enter into a contract, one can easily find themselves with severe financial liabilities if the market doesn't go their way. Likewise, it is common for financial commentators and analysts to compare derivatives trading to gambling. While these instruments provide price stability for producers, traders also utilize these markets to make bets on where future prices will be. And though I mentioned earlier that increased trading in and of itself is not necessarily bad, the danger lies when too much attention is placed on the derivative and not on the actual underlying asset itself. This is perhaps most famously illustrated in the 2008 financial crisis, where one of the main culprits was a derivative known as a collateralized debt obligation, or CDO. As Michael Greenberger, a law school professor at the University of Maryland, describes, What happened in our situation, especially when the, when the mortgage lenders wanted to take risks with subprime loans, that is, people who did not have the likelihood to pay them off, is that people were so excited about the possibility of making money off this that they ran out of the actual mortgages and securities in the mortgages. So what the banks decided to do was to create bets on whether or not the mortgages would be paid off. They were synthetic securities. That is to say, you didn't own anything, but you were betting that the, the borrower would pay the mortgage off. To this end, while we have looked at one key way in which financial instruments facilitate our modern economy, we should still be wary of the risks involved. And for what it's worth, even the legendary investor Warren Buffett himself is extremely cautious on the matter. As he wrote in the Berkshire Hathaway Annual Report for 2002, quote, In my view, derivatives are financial weapons of mass destruction, carrying dangers that, while now latent, are potentially lethal. This quote by Buffett nicely rounds out this episode's running theme of timing. From the issues faced by whiskey producers to the potential solutions provided by futures markets, time plays a key role in our economy. It can act as constraints to sellers of certain goods, yet also as the basis for solutions to alleviate them. But perhaps the most important feature of time is that it is the ultimate judge and juror. All too often, whether by circumstance or by our own heuristics, it can be too easy for us to forget this. 
We might think that the past is gone and irrelevant, that the future is distant and unimaginable, and that the present, because it's tangible and experienced, is the only thing that matters. But as the story of Suntory or even the financial crisis and Warren Buffett show, there is no escaping from your consequences. While this can seem like a bitter pill to swallow, it can also be a small sliver of practical wisdom. Which is to say that before you do or commit to anything, even if it seems incredible or irresistible at the moment, it can hurt to consider and be wary of what lies down the road. Likewise, if you're unsatisfied with your current predicament, don't be afraid to look back into the past to see what went wrong, as well as what you can change to make yourself better. On this front, Santori themselves provide a fitting close to the Hibiki story. For shortly after announcing the discontinuation, Hasumi Ozawa of the company's PR team confirmed the release of a new expression in their Hibiki line named Blender's Choice. Born out of the time-constrained challenges that Santori faced, this new expression is slated to be a no-age statement, the third of its kind released in the Hibiki range. Given what we've discussed in this episode, it's hard not to feel like this is a truly unexpected twist. Instead of turning towards futures contracts or other financial instruments to accommodate their problems, they changed their business model so as to avoid running into these time constraints in the future. While fans of age whiskies might need a while to accept this new direction, it's comforting to see that the company has learned from its mistakes after all. Thank you for tuning in to the Economical Rice Podcast. If you like what you hear, do help by sharing this episode to your friends or family, or by subscribing on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Music for this episode was provided by Podington Bears and the Blue Dot Sessions, which are linked in the description along with all the other research materials used. And if you have any feedback or questions, especially with regards to the mechanics of futures contracts, do reach out by leaving a comment or by dropping an email. Any and all input to improve the show will be greatly appreciated. This has been your host Danny at the Economical Rice Podcast, where over here we hope to serve you the grains of capitalism. Mm-hmm.